What's the best site in India? The Taj Mahal, the Golden Temple? For Rintwa, it's his market stall. Some years ago, he lost his sight and then his job. I'm Lisa from Specsavers and we help the Hope Foundation provide eye care in Kolkata. Rintwa was found to have cataracts. The charity performed surgery, which gave him his vision back. He regained confidence and returned to work. Find out how we're changing people's lives for the better at specsavers.ie. I'm Gary Cook, and you're listening to Trailblazers. In the world of rock and roll, these days, Dublin is one of the most common places, you would say, for the world's elite rock stars to jet into on their tour of the globe. From Garth Brooks to Harry Styles, from Bruce Springsteen to Beyonce Knowles, Lady Gaga, the list is endless, pretty much everyone. However, it wasn't always like this. Today's guest is, in many ways, one of the godfathers of the Irish live music industry. He kick-started his way uh, to fame and fortune in the 1960s and 1970s. He's here today. Uh, it is great pleasure to introduce Pat Egan. Hiya, Pat. Gary, how you doing? It's a very flattering introduction. I'm not, not quite 100% because... Uh, Jim Chilikin was there as a kind of pioneering Irish promoter of the bigger events, but I was uh, I wasn't far behind him. Well, as I say, one of the one of the Godfathers, and indeed, Jim Aiken was uh, a man I met myself many times, uh, and uh, he was uh, I know he was he was doing stuff. Oh, don't spoil it, Pat! Don't spoil it. <laughs> okay, so Pat. Um, you you started out uh, in in the in the late nineteen sixties when there was really almost no Irish music scene at all. I know there was the early days of, of you know Phil Linnet and so on. What was it like, uh, Pat? What well, was... there there was a strong a strong local scene in that the show bands were very big and. Uh, the, the the rock music end of it hadn't really broken through. There were a couple of people there that were making noises, Rory Gallagher's and Van Morrison's and whatever, but there were very few uh, local kind of rock acts and uh, uh, only really one venue as such, which was the Boxing Stadium in South Circa Road, which was regularly used for gigs. It was a it was a pioneering time in the sense that uh, it hadn't been done before. Uh, the, the amount of restrictions for running a show compared with today were pretty non-existent. You just uh, you just hired the venue and put the show on, and uh, it was uh, it was a great time to be around. Much better, I can tell you, than now. Mm. If you wanted to enter the entertainment business these days, it's uh, uh, it's, it's impossible almost. <laughs> Well, it's impossible, I presume, because it is completely sewn up by 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 not just big local promoters, but by by worldwide promoters, uh, of which Live Nation are, are are one. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's pretty much how it is today. It's uh, the it's a, it's not a very and it it actually shouldn't be it shouldn't be allowed. It's not right that one company can control all the theatres in Dublin, uh, and it uh, it's just not good, and it, it blocks the way for anybody want to enter the business whatsoever. I mean, to hire a venue, the costs are just incredible. This is partly due to that the venues are all promoter-owned or promoter-run. Mm. In other words, uh, promoters, people like Live Nation, MCD, Aikens, will run their own shows uh, as a priority before they take in anybody else's. Uh, yeah, I, I, I sort of get the feeling that that's the way it goes. Whereas when you were uh, starting out in the in the sort of late 60s, uh, as you say, there was almost no venues, no venues there. So, so was there an audience at that time or did you have to build an audience or how did, how did it go, Pat? Well, the international acts that uh, were around at that time touring, it was, again, it was a, 
at first kind of thing. There was no there was no template to follow. Bands went out on the road, and the promoters in different countries would uh, would pay them a fee, generally a strike fee of whatever it would be at the time. I remember we did uh, LP Brooks, who was um, a big act in the seventies and early eighties. And she just came in for a fee of 5,000 quid per show. So if I made 10,000, that was my business. Uh, and she got paid. And that was all that kind of concerned uh, the act at that time. But that's all changed now where there is no opportunity for young promoters or whatever to make any real money on a concert because the artist... Uh, and it's probably down to the event at the inclusion of Ticketmaster that the artist now is aware of every penny that comes in the door and therefore is not going to let anybody make a uh, a killing on the on their on their back if you know what I mean sure uh, now when you like back in the 1970s uh, I, I was I was growing up and so on um, but concerts and big names and so on were relatively they were quite a big event i mean i remember looking up you know you posters of of eric clapton you bought eric clapton over uh, uh, uh several times i remember once i think it was around 1978 or something and i just couldn't believe that this rock god legend guitar player uh, actually walked on the same planet as i did so how, how how did you go about getting these types of names well uh I just, I still have a poster on my wall at home there in the office of the Eric Clapton show. The tickets were three quid, which will give you will give you an idea of uh, the kind of money. Even if you had 2,000 people in, you only grow six grand or whatever. So um, that was, uh, at that time, it was open season. There was no, it became, the whole thing became, you know, International companies got involved and bought out everybody in something in recent years. But in the early days, I uh, I spent a lot of time going back and forward to London and dropping into people's office. If I knew who the manager of a certain artist was, I'd go to wherever he he was, or I'd go and see people like Harvey Goldsmith, who was a big promoter in England, and just make myself known to them and see what they had touring over the next year or so, and then make offers and. It was a much more, it was a very enjoyable um, part of the business in those days because you met a lot of different characters, be managers or agents or whatever. That You can't do that anymore. There's no way you can jump on a plane tomorrow and go over to London and book an international act because it's all controlled basically by a couple of big, two big international companies, one of which is Live Nation. And um, so the opportunity, as I said earlier on, the opportunity, you know, to start from scratch and to make a, a good living, a comfortable lifestyle and all that is is totally gone. So it doesn't, it just, so, so it, I mean, just as a matter of interest, I mean, what was the kind of money that you could make out of bringing in? Because you bought in big, big acts like, you know, Elton John and, Queen in the late in the late seventies and uh, you know Freddie Starr I remember and uh, Billy Connolly and so on a whole load of them you put in everybody really so yeah, was well, there I'm good sure. money to be made for you at that time? Yeah. Well, there wasn't any. The competition wasn't great. Jim Aiken had done a lot of acts before me, a lot of international acts, and he stood back for a little while and then he came back into the business again on a, a larger scale. Uh, so the acts were were doing shows in the UK. It seemed to make sense that if we could afford to get them over here, they generally, a lot of them didn't want to come because they'd lose a day coming and a day going back, which was costly. But overall, it was uh, it was just a, an awareness of the market so that I, I knew who was happening because I had the record shop, the sound cellar, which was a, a kind of the first... Uh, what we call the progressive rock music store in Dublin. Uh, I was very aware of things that were happening because my customers were all very, you know, I, I, um, 
I got a lot of information from my customers about what was happening, who was good, who was good, and and what was going to sell and what wasn't going to sell. And that for the for the entire music business, they were the the best days where you had the the really big acts like the Eric Clapton's and um, Bob Marley. Of course, was a big act for for me because it was an outdoor show and it was the first real. There had been a couple of smaller outdoor shows before that, but he was the first international star to come and do an outdoor gig in Ireland. And I can remember to this day we paid him sixty thousand, which was a colossal amount of money in nineteen eighty. And uh, it was a great success. And the, the outdoor business, the big festivals, the people you mentioned at the beginning, uh, they all uh, pretty much followed on from that. The, the deals changed or whatever. Like I said earlier, Bob Marley asked for X amount of money. And if I made the same amount of money or I made 40 grand or 30 grand, nobody said, well, we want 80% of that as well, which is the way today. So... They were just pioneering times and the opportunities were there. And I was, you know, I hadn't an education of, of such. I left school at 13, but I, I had a bit of street sense. So I knew that if I could uh, if I could pay somebody uh, 5,000 quid and make 5,000 quid for myself, it seemed to make sense. Well, it's certainly it's certainly fair enough. You're taking all, all of that risk. So 60 grand for Bob Marley. Uh, and is that sixty grand for sort of the the whole payment of his band and yeah, everybody, or is it just to him? No, no, we would have paid for uh, extras for obviously flights and hotels, and then of course we had to build a stage in Dalymount Park and put in a sound system and all that. So that that all went on top of the sixty grand. But we initially I wanted to charge ten quid for the ticket, but. Uh, Bob Marley wasn't happy with that. He said it was too, uh, it was too much. Uh, he wanted a cheaper ticket for the fans, so we agreed on a fee of seven seven thousand quid, or sorry, a fee a fee of fifty thousand and a ticket of uh, a ticket of seven quid. So, I mean, as you say, sixty thousand quid was a vast sum of money. This was in nineteen seventy seven, wasn't it? No, 1980. 19, sorry, 1980. Uh, yeah. 1980, yeah. And um, and I remember I was away in France at the time and a, a guy, a fellow that we'd taken over with us on the family holiday was a huge Marty fan. And he, wa- he wanted, he, he was kind of complaining that he was on holiday in the south of France when he really wanted to be uh, in Dailyman Park with uh, the Bob Marley gig. So 60 grand uh, in yeah. 1980. It was a vast, vast sum of money. Uh, and so, so like, presumably, if you didn't make that money back, you still had to pay him the 60 grand. Yeah. And you... Well, of course, that's the way it works. The artist doesn't take a, a risk on the promotion. They, they get their money. In most cases, it would be paid up front, uh, maybe a month a month before the uh, the show they'll have been paid their full fee so you have to have a few bob in the bank and you have to but when you're younger like that i was only in my early 30s in those days late 20s early 30s i um i you know i flew by the seat of my pants i i would take a flyer with things because i felt i knew the market it's like some of the young guys you you meet today who were in the uh the tech business and stuff and they take risks and stuff because you took, that was the way life is when you're younger, you just take risks and you yeah. go with it. And you don't, you don't always think about the, the, you know, the opposite end if things go wrong. Well, and cause I remember seeing you years ago getting interviewed in, on uh, TV Gaga. Do you remember that show on RT? And I remember, always remember you said, uh, and I, you opened my eyes to the whole thing. You said one bad gig for a promoter can sink the promoter. Yeah, that's that. There's been a history of that across the thing. I mean, if you run an outdoor festival these days, you, you know, you're looking at a million quid, even for a small one. You're not far off a million quid in terms of outlay, in terms of artists, and and. You know, if you go to somewhere like Crow Park, you'd be paying them a million and a half. I'm sure Garth Brooks is paying them a million, or they're 
paying the concert or the GAA a million quid per show or more, plus extras and things. So you can see where the risks are at. But even in a small show these days, if you go to somewhere like the National Concert Hall or you know, even Vicker Street or some of these places, you can lose 20,000 or 25,000 in a night if you don't do business. Yeah. So, so there, is, there are risks involved, but at, at that time when I was doing it, the risks were worth taking. They're not anymore because the artist now takes 80%, 90% of the box office. And in some cases now with the biggest artists in the world, the Eagles and people like that, they take 100% of the box office and the, the promoter is making his money on the ticket charges on a, with Ticketmaster. That's how they make. That's how they make their money. On on. Uh, that's how the promoter makes his money. On that. That's why when you buy your ticket for the Eagles at a hundred quid and you end up paying a hundred and twenty-seven or a hundred and thirty-five quid for it, that's where the promoters make their money these days. They make it on the ticket charges. They don't. The artist will take all the money at the box office. And does that apply to every artist, or is it only the artists no, who are as big as the Eagles? The very it applies to the very big artists, but all the other ones, the secondary artists and all, they'll all take 90% of the net box office, and you have to guarantee what that next box office is going to be. If the net box office on the show is, you know, after paying all the bills, is 60 grand, and uh, they will want to take 90% of that, which means that you don't make very much money. Six grand, if you're lucky, having taken all those risks, it doesn't make any sense anymore. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. And Live Nation and, and and outfits like that, I mean, they run, as we've already mentioned, I mean, they, they're they the biggest in the, in, in the world. And I presume what happens is they pay money up front to an artist just to do a, a well, world they tour. Buy, they will, uh, they've done it with you too in recent years and other big acts. They will buy the tour out in advance, could be two years in advance, and they'll buy the entire tour out and they'll pay you two fifty or a hundred million or whatever it is, and then they have to sell the show and, you know, do all the deals with the with the venues and all that stuff to make their money back. Okay. Uh but as I say, back in the nineteen seventies this was different. And uh, what was, uh, by the way, uh, Eric Clapton and, you know, others, uh, Van Morrison, who I know you, you, you promoted, what was what were they like to deal with? Well, like I, I said before, I generally dealt with, I was more interested always in, in, being, in, in making it a relationship with the management, with the managers and people like that, rather than the artists. I did know some of the artists over the years. I, I got to know some of them well because I... I you know, they made friends with me or whatever, but uh, not a great deal of them because I was really wasn't that interested in uh, in hanging out with the act. I was more interested in hanging out with the manager yeah. if I could so that I could build a, a relationship. Uh, I read a story about um, a few, well, several stories, but a few of them, the people that you brought over, including Lou Reed, where you had to provide or uh, other services. Is that correct? For who? Lou Reed. Oh, yes. Well, Lou Reed was... Uh, I, I only did one show with Lou Reed. I don't know how many times he came to Dublin. I think he only came a couple of times. This would have been the first time in the 80s when he came in to uh, play the, the boxing stadium or whatever. And yes, he wanted to, me to look after a lady who was flying in from Amsterdam and make sure that she was uh, well looked after and stuff like that. That was pretty much part and parcel of 
of the artist. Now, at this time, it's probably all changed and become an awful lot more sophisticated now. But in those days, it was uh, the artist would ask for certain things that, and you, you have to provide them uh, as per the contract. Yeah, and well, isn't it the famous stories of um, uh, of the blue M- the blue M and M's? Isn't that the you know a band wants forty thousand oh, yeah. blue M and M's, and the reason for it is not because they want the M and M's, but because if the promoter doesn't do that properly, then what what do they do properly? Type thing, isn't that well, right? Well, currently, I'm I'm just sitting here looking at a contract that I have for a show next Thursday because I'm I'm kind of running down the number of shows I'm doing now at this stage of my life, but I'm just looking at a contract here for uh, a very famous guy, Richard Clayderman, who played the, the piano for X number of years. Oh, and, I remember uh, well, yeah. He, um, I am told, and it's pretty much out there in the public domain, even though he sold 90 million records, he's now uh, he's now broke, and he's on the lookout for a, a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, having sold all those records because he... Um, he got himself into financial difficulties. I think he was married three or four times uh, or whatever. But I know it's out there in the public domain that he has uh, has lost uh, most of his, his fortune or whatever. Um, but I, uh, the, contract that's in, the contract that's sitting in front of me is for insisting on that they stay at the Shelburne Hotel. And staying at the Shelburne Hotel in 2022... Uh, the same week as um, Garth Brooks is in town is a hugely, hugely expensive. The profit on the show is basically gone on what we have to pay for the suites and the shelter and whatever. So they're the kind of things you come up against. When we took this show, I've done Richard Clayman for years and years. When we took this show on, um, the Garth Brooks um, show probably wasn't even there. Uh, you know, it wasn't on sale at the time. So you come up against all kinds of, of things. You can't legislate for everything. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, and so so Lou Reed was, I read, in, I read in your book that was Lou Reed, uh, did, did he ask you to, during the gig, or you had to pick up somebody from Dublin Airport, a girlfriend oh, yeah, of his? I, I sent that to you there. Lou Reed asked us to pick up a lady who was coming in from Amsterdam, yeah. For that he wanted looked after especially and she was to be brought to the show and and uh, accommodated backstage and all that kind of stuff <laughs> and you and so, you were you were you were picking her up at Dublin airport when the gig was on I was when he Brilliant. was on stage I was standing out at Dublin airport waiting for the things I had the same kind of thing with Freddie Starr who was another uh, man a ladies man and uh, I was forever uh, hopping between Belfast Airport and, and the gig or Dublin Airport and the gig picking up various ladies that had uh, <laughs> that, were, that were coming in to see him. Okay. So Freddie was an exceptional kind of, uh, he was out on his own in terms of there was no normal uh, things happening with Freddie. Everything was off the wall and, uh, you know, he got a, he, he lost everything in the end and he died penniless in Spain of, few years back and uh, it was very sad because at the height of his fame he was you know he was worth an awful lot of money and then he got himself mixed up or well i don't know whether he was never touched anything in that uh jimmy savile inquiry and all that and it, it destroyed his career you know uh and the, the general what are the the kind of maddest things that you've been asked for as a promoter because i mean we know the kind of general accoutrement that go with the uh, with the uh, rock and roll excess and so on but uh be- beyond that or how do you deal with that stuff generally you know how, how does well, that go it's probably as i said it's probably changed now and has become more of a normal thing now in the in the earlier days we were talking about eric clapton we had to uh eric was always looking for something uh unusual or, or whatever when he came and during his time with me over over about I don't know 14 or 15 years uh, he was very much uh, he wasn't he wasn't acting in a normal kind of way because he was had come off the uh, the drugs and he was on he was drinking very heavily for seven or eight years and uh, so 
I don't think Eric even knew in a lot of the times that he was actually in Dublin. He could have been in Birmingham or he mm. could have been somewhere else. He didn't honestly know. But he would... Um, I remember we had to get a football table for him. You know, the football table where you swing the players around. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, foosball, I think yeah. it's called, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And uh, he wanted that at half 11 at night. And the manager said, well, you better get one somewhere, Pat, because that's what he wants. So... Uh, we managed to get one and get some lads to carry it down Stephen's Green and dump it onto the floor in, in the Shelburne Hotel, which they weren't that happy about. And um, at that point, I was delighted to have got it. And I rang Eric's manager and, and he just said to me, Eric's gone to bed, Pat, now he's asleep. So the table was pretty much left there after we paid a grand for it and uh, returned the next day to the the, the um, what's it? it was a kind of a... Um, a gambling place up on the green. Okay. The top of the green. Yeah. So, it, like, I get the sense that promoters really need to be very resourceful people with a lot of contacts in a lot of different places. Very much so in the earlier days. Nowadays, it's all, you know, it's like all big businesses now. Everything is covered. Uh, in the earlier days, it was, there was no... There wasn't any any routine to follow or any yeah. template in place for things. It was all by the seat of your pants stuff. You just did it. You got the things done. And the big difference was you could make money in those days. If I, in a lot of shows, I would make more money than the artist in those days, which oh, yeah. made it made it really worthwhile. <laughs> you you have no no hope whatsoever in hell of making any money these days compared with the way it used to be. I mean, if you're doing a big show like the Garth Brooks show, obviously you're 10% of whatever 30 million or whatever is obviously very valuable. Uh, if you're working on 10% and I haven't a clue what they're working on of that, but uh, other than that, running a show in the Olympia where you take in 60 grand or whatever, you know, a thousand people at, at 60 quid a ticket or whatever, mm. You're probably you're probably looking to get four or five grand out of it, which makes it very risky. It, it certainly does, and uh, talk about a labour of love. Um, I, I know a, f a friend of mine is his uh, son is very um, very gifted musically, and he's already written and recorded two two albums on his iPhone. Brilliantly yeah. done, by the way. And uh, yeah. his dad was getting advice from. Uh, a senior person in the Irish music industry has said, don't worry about the uh, managerial sharks. They don't exist anymore. There's no money in it. <laughs> well, there's no money. This is what's happened too. I mean, I'm, I'll be, you know, I'm in, in my mid seventies now and I, um, I can't see any few. I don't want to necessarily give up because I'm not completely wasted. I still enjoy the thing, but there isn't any, it, it, there's no options now. Yeah, sure. The options are the options are gone completely. The business in Ireland is now controlled pretty much ninety percent by by Live Nation mm -hmm. MCD. Uh, Aikens would own the other other portion of it, and there isn't any room for independent promoters. They're, you're you're more of a pain in the ass to them now if you're looking for dates off them, and since they don't necessarily want to deal with you. COVID has changed everything beyond, in terms of costs, beyond anything that was there previously. The costs of everything has jumped up over 100%. The venues went from five grand to 10 grand and everything else on top of that, which means you've just got to keep pushing the ticket price up. And there's a limit to what you can get for smaller shows. You know, 50 quid is probably the limit. And uh, it makes it very tough. I'm sure it is. I'm sure. They, well, everything uh, these days, prices are going up <laughs> every conceivable way yeah. and for every conceivable uh, uh, reason. Uh, I was going to ask you: Is the other aspects of of, of the the shows that you did way back when, uh, like security and was in its infancy in those days, wasn't it? It wasn't. It wasn't as well. As, you had to learn uh, because there hadn't been any big events before. You were always uh, running when you were running shows. You always came up against some new situation that you hadn't kind of legislated for, and you had to be extremely careful. The insurance in those days was very uh, 
was very reasonable you for public liability insurance. It's now colossal money because the in the insurance industry saw all the money that the rock business was generating and decided they were going to get their share of it. So if you want public liability insurance for a show now, it's crazy money, you know. They, so it makes it it makes it very difficult. It's another big cost, and all these costs are added up. And then the artist wants to take his 85, 90%, yeah. which leaves nothing, nothing for the promoter. So why would you bother subsidizing all these people, keeping them at work when there's no nothing there for you at the end of the day? That's exactly what's happened now. So the insurance companies, you're saying, it's not so much that they were the recipients or that they had to deal with massive claims. That's not the reason why the public liability is so expensive. It's because they're saying... Or what you're saying is that they see a pot of money and they say we're going to get our hands on some of it. Well, they see the pot of money and they they get entitled to their percentage of it because I mean it is a a risky business if you're running an outdoor show and you there has been a few a few few dodgy ones that happened to one in the states recently where people ended up getting killed and and seriously injured and all that. Well, obviously the insurance needs to be in place to cover all those eventualities, but. The concerts are so well run now, you know, the electric picnics and the guard books and because they're, you know, so well policed that you shouldn't really have that many major uh, insurance claims. You'll always always have some because something will will injure themselves, but not to the same extent Mm. that uh, it was years ago. Uh, And dealing with the, the, the actual sort of, the backstage vibe. It was always really exciting, you know, the idea of, I know your biography is, isn't it a backstage pass? Uh, and it's all, it was always a really exciting idea to have a all access, you know, uh, all access kind of pass for yeah. a rock gig. You must have come up against an awful lot of the, the liquor world of, of, of hangers on and entourages. Well, in, in the 1980s, uh, Dublin was pretty much a uh, you know a lawless town. It was was the policing of Dublin wasn't great in those days, and there was continuing bank robberies, post office robberies, holdups everywhere or whatever. And again, like I said earlier, I was in my thirties, mid thirties, maybe forty at the time in the eighties, and. Um, you kind of, it was part of your existence or whatever. So you didn't think about it that much, but it was all around me. In, in three or three different cases, I, I ended up people looking for protection money. I had a, a new car that I had bought. Somebody poured a, uh, a tin of black paint over it uh, because I didn't pay the, uh, the money that was being asked for. And in the nightclub, you'd have, you'd have gangsters that, uh, you know, some of them were friendly enough, and if they just wanted a night out, and they'd come in, and uh, you let them in free, and they'd be at the bar all night or whatever. But uh, we were held up a couple of times as well. I was held up in the middle of Cable Street at three o'clock on a Sunday morning with a shotgun put right up at my face when the oh. guys wanted to want, wanted to take the money. But they, at the time, it all happened so fast. You don't get time to to be nervous or whatever. It's only afterwards when you realize what had happened. So those things were, they were very much not like now the way that, you know, you don't have that many holdups in places anymore because of the the fact that cash is, is disappearing. And uh, so they were, they were kind of wild west days. Yes, certainly. You had, uh, didn't you have bad bobs was, was your place? No, I had the bar. I had purchased the premises that was there. Uh, it was called the, the Granary at the time. Oh, okay. And uh, I turned it into the backstage bar, and then it was purchased off me by uh, Jerry O'Reilly, and he turned it into Bad Bob's, which was an exceptional venue for Dublin at the time. It was really, you know, Jerry had a great... Uh, he was a character. He had a great... Um, a great feel for what was happening in the nightlife business and Bad Bob's was probably one of the best kind of venues of its of its kind in in, in the uh, the late eighties and the nineties. I remember it well and the waterfront as well, which was down was that down in Sir John Rogerson's key around there? Yeah, 
I got the water from. Well, I had done a deal with somebody for for the uh, for the backstage bar and Temple Bar, and uh, they didn't come up with all the money. And I they gave me the waterfront as part payment, which I didn't really want. But we took it on, and uh, we we did really well there, considering it was where it was. But it was in those days there was no drinking after after the pubs closed, so we had a late license, which yeah. was responsible for for getting the thing in. We also got the movie. The commitment was pretty much. 70% shot there and all the rehearsals were done there and everything. So uh, we did okay out of it, but I was glad at the end of the day to give up the nightclub business. Wasn't it around the corner, it was very close to Windmill Lane as well. So you got, a, you got like, you got some bands. Yeah, I mean, you two are kind of associated with, with the, around are, there, yeah, the, the, dock, the Dockers pub was just up the road and that was pretty much supposed to be the U2 local kind of pub. Bono spent a lot of time in there. And uh, so that, at the, again, at that time, the, the docks area hadn't been, uh, you know, it wasn't like now. Oh, I know. It was pretty much, in, it was in a derelict state all around, really. And uh, it uh, it was going away. I enjoyed my time down in, in the waterfront and, with, and all the other ventures. But would I do them again now, knowing what I know now? No, I certainly <laughs> wouldn't. Uh, and I mean, you mentioned uh, uh, Bono there and, and, and you too. Uh, you did do a gig with them, or they they played at one of your shows many many years ago in the in the early days, isn't that right? Yeah, they supported the Stranglers out in the top hat in Dunleary when they were getting their trying to get their their first breakthrough. I think it was just before or just after Paul McGinnis took them on. Anyway, we uh, we ran the Stranglers out in the top hat in Dunleary with two thousand people there, and you two opened for that, and I paid them fifty quid at the time. I remember that there was some story uh, uh, around that time that uh, the Stranglers weren't uh, wildly interested in in U2's no, no, approach. They, they, didn't, uh, they didn't take kindly to Adam Clayton lifting a bottle of wine out of their dressing room. There was a bit of a row, <laughs> a bit of a row backstage. Uh, but I've had that a, a lot of times where the support bands will uh, will slip into the artist, yeah. the main artist's dressing room when they're on stage and lift out a plate of sandwiches or a bottle yeah. of whatever happens to be there. And what did you make of the early U2, uh, Pat? I wasn't, to be, ver to be fair. I probably was too busy trying to run my business and get things going that I didn't see the, um, the early U2 in performance. Uh, Obviously, they had what it takes. It's like now I, I would be way out of touch with the bands that are happening yeah. these days. But I think I think the difference, the big difference is there were huge opportunities for U2 in the 1980s. There are very few opportunities for the bands that are out there today. It's really unless unless they're able to sell out arenas, you know, 20,000 people or whatever, they won't make any money to keep them for the rest of their lives. It won't be like you know the guys from the early days the Van Morrison's and all that who wrote all those songs and they had their catalog and their their publishing and all that it's just so much different now there's no there's no records been sold so the bands are dependent upon streaming income which is you know at the highest level it's probably keeping people alive but for midterm or mid kind of ranking bands and stuff it's really really difficult I mean I, I see shows in the theatres in town and I know looking at them even if they're sold out that the artist by the time he comes out of it at the end of the day having paid all the bills and then paid his own musicians and his own crew it's probably picking up you know something in the region of 10 or 12 percent of the of the gross box office for himself if he's looking yeah yeah yeah, uh, and then you have to live after that. If you're a rock star, you have to live like a rock star, you know, which is always expensive. Yes, uh, although I presume the irony is that the most successful of rock stars probably do, don't end up paying for almost anything. <laughs> well, there, there used to be stories about, you know, with, with Bono and the lads, especially Bono, he didn't pay for anything anywhere, basically. He just kind of walked in the door and the drink was put in front of them or the champagne or whatever yeah. and uh, that was how it is well that's celebrity for you you know if you if you get to that level why not well that was true about um yeah uh, jack charlton as well isn't that right 
that uh, he he used to he'd, he'd sign a check in a in a pub knowing that they'd never cash it and they just put it up behind I, the bar. <laughs> I heard, I heard that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that happened a lot with Paul McGrath too because he was. Uh, I did a bit of work with Paul in those days or whatever. He was a guy that he couldn't put his head in the door of a, a pub or a bar or whatever without somebody buying him a drink and another drink and another drink, you know. I know. I, re- I remember uh, Apre Match. Uh, we, we did a thing uh, at your, I think it was a George Best night. Uh, yeah, that uh, was the night I put on. Yeah, that was at, right. Yeah. At which uh, Paul McGrath spoke, and he spoke very, very well. I remember thinking he was very impressive um, and I couldn't, he was so nervous when I was talking to him before he was going on and uh, fair enough, people get nervous. But when he was on, I was just thinking, and I, you know, he, he sounds, he sounded like he was a proper orator, somebody who could really speak publicly. And um, I was, I was, I was amazed. And I, I saw that you yourself were, were going to be doing a, a bit of work with him. Isn't that right? Yeah, well, uh, Paul had the ability to do all those things. And after he retired, uh, I was looking after him for a couple of years. And we were, you know, for the first year, we had grossed or were about to gross around 350000 in endorsements and, per, and performance fees and everything else. And halfway during that, which was the World Cup time in Saipan or whatever, he... Uh, he went out there for after getting a spot on the BBC's Match of the Day team, and uh, it all fell to pieces. It was tragic, really tragic, and it's still tragic today. I know he's doing some ads and things today, but he was just the most popular. He was the most popular sportsman in Irish mm. sporting history, even I, more I so than Jack Charlton or, or Eamon Coughlin or any of those people. He was. Uh, the people just loved him, and he could have he could have earned an absolute fortune in his after football career had he been able to, uh, you know, to beat his demons or whatever. Yeah, I I know it was it was very difficult for him, uh, and uh, as it is for a lot of people, it's it's a terrible it's a terrible disease, uh, the problem of alcohol. Um, on 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 a slightly more uh, sort of. Uh, uh, optimistic note you are still you are still involved you say you haven't retired and you're still involved putting together events no i well i am since i since we came back after the covid there were an awful lot of shows before the covid which had to be rescheduled not not just once but twice and things so i'm going through all those at the moment i have a, a few still coming up uh, and I don't know, we have the pantomime at Christmas and the Olympia, which we've been doing for 20 years nearly now. Uh, but I am looking at uh, taking a backseat and, and maybe doing something else for a little while. I don't want to give up uh, working because I enjoy working, but I uh, there's not too many jobs for guys that are going to be 77, you know? <laughs> no, no, although Brush Shields telling me that he's uh, planning on um, running being the fastest, uh, I think, over 80 uh, uh, yeah. in the world. He's planning on uh, running the 100 metres in, I think it's about 16 seconds or something, or maybe even less, I'm not sure. <laughs> he, looks, he must be in good shape. So. <laughs> well, it, it apparently he is. Um, uh, mm. uh, and I interviewed him a while ago, uh, and I know he was one of the first people in the music scene uh, as well as as well as uh, Phil Innes, did, did you know Phil? Phil Innes, yeah. Well, I knew him when when nobody wanted to know him. Put it like that: when he was only a kid, we were we were quite close for a few years before he he broke in with Tin Lizzy. Uh, we hung out together. He spent time in my home and things. So, but as I always say, I never knew Phil Innes, the rock star. The guy I knew was just a just a mate, a, a friend, and. Uh, spent time going to clubs and walking around Grafton Street at weekends and going to the coffee dock and all those kind of things. So I didn't know, I knew Phil was going to be, uh, was going to be a star in those days. We, we a lot of us hung out around Senate place and uh, Brush Shields was the kind of main man around in those days that everybody looked up to. And, uh, so I knew, yes, I knew Phil Linnett, but I didn't know the Phil Linnett that, uh, 
the world knows now or didn't know afterwards, you know? Yeah, yeah. The um, He was particularly riding high with Thin Lizzy in the mid in the mid 70s and and just when it looked like they were, might kind of break america uh, i know there was various issues with band members uh, brian robertson i remember was uh, injured before night before they were going i remember phil himself yeah, i think they had troubles going going out to the state on the flight as well there was a lot of bad vibes around that time and they were starting to uh, to break in america but uh Again, you see, the drugs gets in the got in the way as it has for so many people, and and you can't run a career if you're if you're pumping yourself full of shit every day or whatever, you know. Yeah, uh, uh, I know. I was reading, by the way, a couple of other people that you had, um, including Shirley Bassey, who you described as uh, certainly one one of the world's great divas, but the greatest performer you ever you ever saw. Pretty much, is that right? Yeah. Uh, I was a big fit. Shirley Bassey wasn't never fitted into the rock star uh, kind of thing. She was a big kind of big showbiz cabaret variety performer, but she was every bit a rock star in her in her the way she lived her life. And not only that, she was probably of all the women that I've seen on stage in my in my seventy years, nobody came nearer in terms of of captivating. The audience and, and uh, share, you know, she was just unique on stage. She uh, and I think because she didn't operate in the in the rock end of the market, she didn't always get the credit she deserved for the artist that she was. You know, yeah. Well, she, in, in those days, those type of variety artists didn't write their own material. Most of the songs were written for uh, by other people, but. Um, Shirley Bassey was absolutely unique. I mean, as I haven't ever seen anybody perform like her, you know. Yes. Barbara Streisand would probably be somewhere along the line. And believe it or not, Rebecca Storm is another artist that at her, in her prime was an absolute, absolute out on her own in terms of, of quality and, and stage performance and all that. So but Shirley was definitely the best. Yeah, she's she name checked by David Bowie actually in a when uh, they were having some dispute with the promoter or, or or venue manager or somebody at a venue they were in, and I think David Bowie said the water is the the water in the taps is ice basically, and the promoter said if it was good enough for Shirley Bassey, it's good enough for you. <laughs> Um, well, she complained. She complained about in Dublin about she. We were, in those days, juries in Falls Bridge was pretty much the the place hotel to be in the in those days, and it was uh, always a buzz because they had a twenty four hour coffee place there and whatever. But she, uh, you know, she called it. She hated it. She said it was like a bloody railway station. She said, "I can't walk through." The, the lobby, it's, it's, uh, I want you to have it cleared this evening when I'm leaving, you know? So, <laughs> and did you? Know, did you? No, we, the management managed to bring her out through the kitchen out into her car, which was only going to cross the road 50 yards to the RDS. <laughs> uh, well, that's a proper star. Uh, uh, finally, we're running out of time here. It's fascinating to listen to all these, all, the, all these stories. I know that, didn't you have... Um, a car journey with another one of the, the well, the, one of the greatest singers I've ever heard, uh, Van Morrison. But he did he didn't say a whole lot to you, did he? No, the Van Morrison story is pretty much uh, it's a good one. It goes back to my days in Spotlight when I was writing the magazine and in, in uh, the page in Spotlight magazine, and I nobody really wanted to know about Van in those days. He was the singer with them and. Uh, them had broken up and he had gone to the States. He wrote me a couple of letters thanking me for keeping his name in front of the public. And um, I was a big fan. I got I I got the very first copy, certainly in Europe, of uh, Brown Eyed Girl. He sent me a couple of copies of it and an album called Blown Your Mind from the States. And then when he came over to Ireland, he pretty much just ignored me. Not that I expected him to 
pay me any attention or anything. But uh, I traveled in the car with him after some gigs coming back from Cork, and he just grunted at me and never said a word for the whole journey. But that that was what he was. He is just an exceptional talent, you know, and, and still is an exceptional yeah. talent. So you don't, you don't, you know, I have nothing bad to say about Van Morrison. He, he was just a big star and he, that was the way he acted. And if he wanted to be rude to people, there was nothing I could do about it, you know? Yeah, well, the feeling I get is uh, it's a kind of almost like a backhanded compliment. Uh, the fact that they, they kind of feel that they don't actually have a whole lot to say to you because because you've already done your job. So it's uh, that's a good side, I think. Yeah, no, no. I, I, there I came and he invited me to dinner out at a country house out near Navan that he was staying in. And uh, at first I thought it was Sammy Smith and Donald Corbin in Spotlight playing a joke on me. Uh, but anyway, it was actually Van who was on the telephone oh, and invited me, out, invited me out for dinner out to... Uh, a lovely country house in Navan, a big long driveway into it. The lady, uh, the housekeeper opened up and said, good evening, and Mr. Morrison will be with you shortly. Brought me into a big room, left me there for maybe 20 minutes or so, came back to me and said, Mr. Morrison has changed his mind. He's not dining tonight. You can go home. <laughs> that is a fantastic rock and roll story. And that's the truth. Oh, Every word of it. That is just fantastic. I love it. Uh, and I, met, I met him after that a couple of times, and he just really, he never spoke to me. He just grunted at me. He <laughs> it kind of, somebody had said, or I'd say, it's, it's Paddy, you can hear Van, and brr, brr. that's pretty much it. That is fantastic. Well, listen, I still, I still, I still love the guy. Anyway. Uh, so do I. I mean, he's he's Ireland's greatest singer, in my opinion. Him and Luke Kelly, uh, do with them. Yeah. Anyway, listen, Pat. Thank you very much for talking to me. It's you know, it's it's a bit of a, a, a journey for me because I remember your name is like a mythical name when I was growing up and bringing yeah. in all these people. I, I, I remember I had one of those sporting dinners in the uh, Jury's Hotel. Uh, no, not in Jury's, in the Burlington Hotel. And after a match, we're doing a, uh, a performance at it uh, because I ran a good few sporting dinners in those days with uh, people like Jared Houllier. And, and, That's uh, right, I remember. Uh, we ran the, the uh, Rugby Legends as well, which was David Campesi and Will Carling and people like that. They were all Paul McGrath. The idea was they were dinners for Paul McGrath, team dinners, Paul McGrath's Legends of Sport is what they were called. But um, we used to have to put on a bit of uh, food in the uh, dressing rooms for the artists. And I came in there one day and I saw this guy eating some of the sandwiches. It turned out to be, it turned out to be one Gary Cook. <laughs> And I said, those sandwiches are not for you. I didn't know you were I didn't know you were in a frame match at the time or whatever. But you didn't remember it, but I did anyway all these years later. So I I, I apologize to you uh, now. You can have some sandwiches on me the next time. <laughs> that's quite a right. I, I, I hope I wasn't uh, 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 hostile uh, in your direction, was I? No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was my error. Anyway, not to worry. Um, anyway, listen, it's been fantastic talking to you, uh, Pat. Great stories and uh, congratulations on on your vast success over the years and, and uh, continue to do so with your, with your well, ventures. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. I thank you. See God you, bless. Bye-bye. Why have regular eye tests at Specsavers? Well, they can help reveal health issues like diabetes and high blood pressure. Book an appointment online today.